Welcome to the 63rd episode of the Geek Rex Podcast. I'm Hannah Lodge, and I'll be hosting this week's show in which we talk Doctor Who. Joining me are the rest of the Geek Rex team. We have Cal. Hello. Harper. How's it going? Shane. Hey. And drumroll, Kyle. Hey. <laughs> so I'm just going to jump right into this, you guys. Um, we're talking about the second episode of this season titled Into the Dalek which was a huge tonal shift from the first episode of the season. I want to start by talking about the kind of big main premise of this episode, which is rooted in this question, is the doctor a good man? Keeps coming up throughout the episode. We've seen this question asked by previous incarnations of the doctor. So I'm wondering, why do you think this question has come up so soon for this doctor? I think there's a there's an element, there was in the first episode of... Um, they're kind of playing up the idea that he doesn't really know who he is since he became regenerate, since he got regenerated. Um, and like how they, when they had Matt Smith come on and say, you know, when you look at him, you know, he may put on a brave face, but he's actually very scared. Um, so I think that's a big part of it. I kind of get the impression that, I mean, when, when they announced that Peter Capaldi was going to be playing um, the doctor, pretty much everyone, I mean, I don't think anyone could easily imagine Capaldi being kind of like the dashing man of action that Tennant was or the kind of manic mad professor that Smith was. And Capaldi was known for playing um, such an angry character. Like his iconic role is just constant nonstop fury. And I kind of get the feeling that they realize they have an actor who's really good at playing mean without coming across as too mean. Like he, he's very good at finding that balance and they decided to play with that idea with the idea that the doctor has always done some pretty shady stuff and has kind of hand waved it by being a really friendly guy. And Capaldi, uh, his doctor doesn't have it in him to, he's every bit as shady, but he owns it more Mm -hmm. and kind of reflecting on that. Shane, how about you? Um, I can agree with uh, what Cal's saying and I I haven't spent too much time thinking about it, but I think part of the reason it's, I think Capaldi's doctor so far is maybe a little bit more introspective than uh, Smith's was. Smith's was a bit in the 50th anniversary episode, but that was pretty much it. But, now that Doctor Who's going into its second half of a century, uh, its 51st year, it's, uh, I think it's kind of just, he's he's a doctor that's taking a look back. We have the whole, at the end of the first episode with him saying, I'm over 2,000 years old, I've made a lot of mistakes, and now I need to go back and do something about that. Mm-hmm. And so I think, I think it's just continuing that through line of him being more introspective about who he is as a Time Lord. It's weird to see a character go through an existential crisis on television. It's not the most um not the most dynamic bit of television, but it's also some of the more emotionally satisfying bit of TV I yeah. see. Uh for example, everything you see like a character like Don Draper or um um uh Breaking Bad. <laughs> well, Breaking Bad. God, it, you know, you, you think about a few things you forget about Brian Cranston's character name. Um it's, but so there, there's there's a lot of rewards there. Why they're doing it now? You know that that's a funny question because I mean at its heart, Doctor Who is still a kids show, so it is pretty heavy themes to be handing to a show that does sort of aim at families. Um, but 
I would wonder if maybe some of the root of this is, and I'm going to take maybe a slightly different tack, is that he's got this new regeneration cycle, and we don't mm-hmm. actually know what the root of it is. Like, that energy that came from a pretty divisive episode in the time of the Doctor when it came out of that crack, um, it came from somewhere, someone, somehow, the Gallifreyans, and we don't know actually what the intention was there other mm-hmm. than a potential save um, for the Doctor at some point, at some time, because he knows they're their one savior. But who knows where it came from and what the actual root of it is. So you're saying his because he got a new, he kind of reset his lives or whatever from that mystical bolt of energy from beyond the crack. <laughs> Maybe there's something different about him this time? I mean, that was something we suspected at mm-hmm. one point. I mean, before an episode of the series ever aired, and the eighth series ever aired, was, well, boy, could the Doctor be evil because the energy is different, because this this new cycle is a different person altogether. Um, I, I just don't know. Uh, I mean, I'm sure Cal is probably right. Uh, but if I had to take like a different answer just to play devil's advocate, I don't know. Maybe there's an origin here that needs to be played with mm-hmm. a little bit. That's an interesting point because I know uh, when that Christmas episode ended and he said, do you happen to know how to fly this thing? A lot of people were wondering if he's maybe lost some of his memory because he might not have known how to fly the TARDIS anymore. But I kinda, I'm kind of i a little upset that they didn't kind of continue with that. But at the same time, I'm also glad he's acknowledging he's been around for a while. Yeah, I mean, the the question just lingered with me after the episode concluded because we've seen variations on this question come up, I think, for all of the doctors. I mean, Tennant's doctor, you know, on the Waters of Mars episode, actually, kind of yeah. became too powerful and he realized he was going too far. Um, and then Smith's doctor had to actually go into hiding and try to erase his name because he was causing war, you know? Yeah. So it's not like this idea of the doctor causing more harm than good potentially is a new idea. And, you know, when it was finished, I was thinking, this isn't a new idea. And if this episode had appeared maybe in the latter half of the season, it would have just seemed like, okay, it's his turn to have to answer that question. But for it to be the first thing that he really tackled Mm -hmm. kind of surprised me. And I don't know if that was just a random ordering of the standalone episodes or if that was a very intentional move on their part. I think it's the latter. Yeah, I would agree. I wouldn't think they do something like that unintentionally. So, um, so you know, kind of related to that, in this episode, they definitely seem to hammer home the idea that the Doctor does not seem to be bothered by collateral damage at all. No. <laughs> I mean, you know, they couldn't have been more obvious about that. Do you guys think... I mean, is that a better approach or is that a worse approach? We're not getting the, I'm so sorry, <laughs> after people die anymore, you know? Well, I, this is actually kind of in keeping in character with the first Doctor, though. Um, he was someone who almost murdered someone in cold blood in his very first appearance hmm. when uh, he was uh, trapped, uh, you know, on Caveman World, uh, our, our prehistoric time in like the Unearthly Child serial or uh, 10,000 BC, I think it was called. So he has a history of bloodthirstiness, and uh, there's a line in the first uh, first little bit of uh, in, in, inside the Dalek, um, where into the Dalek, where he says, um, you know, I found myself when I met you on Scaro, when I met your people, and. Prior to uh, you know the very first serial 
of the Daleks is that entire sequence with the cavemen in the early, early, early years of Doctor Who. So that's when he was a much more um, rude and uh, <laughs> potentially uh, in, um, unbalanced individual. So it's possible that some of those character traits still exist where the ends kind of justify the means for him a little bit where, oh, the guy's dead already. Or, oh, you know, you need to sacrifice yourself for the greater good. He's up here in the top layer. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, <laughs> like, it's... He's making a joke about it. Right. It's, it's, it's a very darker strain of humor. And I, and I guess, you know, that sort of sets aside the doctor's hypocrisy about soldiers and stuff too. So, um, but yeah, I mean, maybe someone else has different thoughts on the matter. And it may, it may have something to do with, um, I mean, uh, nine, 10 and 11, uh, Eccleston, Tennant and Smith were, you know, and this wasn't planned, but this could be what they're playing with. They were the doctors who were, kind of refusing the legacy of the war doctor and their kind of legacy of violence. You know, uh, they were the everyone lives doctors and the, um, you know, I hate guns doctors and all this. Whereas, you know, I mean, uh, one of the doctors, the first thing he did after regenerating was attempt to murder his own companion. Um, yeah, it's six doctor. Really? Like yeah. an accident or no on purpose. Oh no, he wanted to murder. Yeah. Was this campaign um, bad? Nope. Oh, all right. <laughs> Sorry, I'll go ahead. <laughs> so I was just saying that this could be, you know, now that he's come to terms with kind of the I don't want to say PTSD since they never really tackled that much, but now that he's come to terms with his more violent past, it could be that there's trying to go back to an earlier, more, um, an earlier, maybe more, more slightly angrier version of the old, like, action hero. Yeah, and I mean, and it could be really just as simple as, um, you know, trying to do something different because people, I mean, we've just gotten used to, you know, Tennant and, and Smith have very kind of, they're different personalities on a more subtle level, but you know, taking a step back, they're not all that different in terms of, you know, they're both very goofy and kind of silly um, and, and a little swashbuckling at times, I guess. Um, and this is just kind of a more, uh, like you said, a kind of a darkly comedic look at it, um, which is something I know we uh, kind of talked about that we were all kind of excited about. Um, so, I mean, you know, outside of story logic, I think there's a lot of reason to want to do it, do something just a little bit different, um, you know, from a audience perspective. I feel like he's still like the whole doctor thing with the doctor is he's supposed to be protective of humans. I think he still is that doctor. He's very protective of mankind, but he's definitely not a, I'm going to say, try and save everybody kind of doctor. I think he's more, a am going to protect you, but if you do something stupid, it's on you. And I kind of like that approach more. Shane, I think you're right in that. He seems to have a less vested interest in humanity than the previous doctors did. Because in that first episode we saw, when the dinosaurs started burning, he had this very angry reaction of like, you fools, what did you do? Yeah. You're kind, blah, 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 blah. This very critical reaction. And in this episode, it seems like he treated soldiers that way too. Like, you're worthless, you know. Yeah. It was very, very harsh. Well, did, did, didn't he use, didn't Christopher Eccleston's doctor used to call humans apes or stupid apes or something yeah, like that? Ignorant apes. Pretty yeah. Funny. Yeah, especially... 
when any of them broke any of his very specific rules. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that that episode with Rose uh, that Paul Cornell wrote is uh, one that comes to mind like most immediately. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm to like changing the time stream, but I guess my point being that this isn't necessarily a totally new right. um, characterization for the Doctor. It's just there were two Doctors in between the Eccleston and. Uh, Capaldi years that were a lot softer or had like a, you know, you had your romantic adventure hero in um, David Tennant's uh, number 10, and then you had the cat in the hat pastiche in uh, Matt Smith's number 11. So, you know, this is sort of almost, uh, it's, it's kind of like a return to number nine, but without the PTSD aspects. Yeah, I was going to say, the problem is we didn't get to know nine yeah. well enough. You know, he kind of came and went pretty quickly. Um, I mean, in, in, in fairness, we've only seen Capaldi twice, but I think he's already built as much characterization as the ninth Doctor had. Um but yeah, I mean, I don't know. It was just, uh, you know, you mentioned that thing about the cat in the hat. And Kyle and I were talking about this in the car the other day. And I feel like if Smith was the cat in the hat doctor, then Capaldi is the Batman doctor. You know, he's very like, he's very utilitarian and logical and dark and kind of doubtful of himself. Um but that's kind of what this this doctor reminds me of is kind of a, an anti-hero. And there's also just his relationship with Clara is so different now too. I mean, so you know, compare. Sorry if you're gonna get to this point. No, it's okay. We can drive um, ahead. No, I mean, I just it's just it's just it just kind of echoes to me the ideas, the issues that he has with humanity in general. Whereas, um, I mean, we we just came off a doctor that was excited about having a gang. Um, whenever he had uh, Nefertiti and uh, the, yeah. the Elephant Hunter and stuff, along with Amy and Rory. And now uh, we have a doctor who has uh, basically treats his, uh, or treats his companions as, well, can you do this for me? Right, <laughs> yeah. like uh, employees. Yeah, right? pretty yeah. much like colleagues at work more than anything else. He's not her boss, but they're definitely like, you know, very close uh, colleagues in some way, shape, or form. I think Clara sees themselves as colleagues, and I think the doctor sees himself as her boss. It's a good, good comparison. I, I think there's actually, um, this episode, they reminded me a little bit of um, of Donna and, and David Tennant, a little bit, um, just in the sense that they've kind of got this, like, playfully making fun of each other kind of thing. And the fact that... Um, that uh, Clara said, you know, you're, you're my hobby. I thought that was kind of a funny line that kind of highlighted the way they kind of think of their relationship. And she slapped the doctor. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> she literally schooled him. This might be the most bit of characterization that Clara's gotten, like, yet. Um, this <laughs> episode, I would say. Kind of. The only thing that bothered me about it, I was thinking about it, because I told you something about their 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 interplay bothered me and I couldn't really nail why. Sure. I feel like they're playing the school teacher card really hard. And it's like the only thing that they're playing with her now, you know, two episodes in a row. I liked it in the first episode, her going back and, you know, how do you teach kids? But then once again, what did we learn? What did we, I don't know. I didn't, I didn't fully appreciate. Is she just going to be the teacher now in every single episode? Yeah, they could have done that a little softer, done some stuff last season with that, but this it really did come kind of suddenly. Yeah, it was kind of on the nose. I'm I'm almost okay with it though, because to me, like having ha- giving Clara one character trait that she does over and over again is still better than giving her no character traits that she does over and over again. Like, 
she's no longer a puzzle, at least. She's a character who hopefully they'll flesh out, but even if they haven't, like, honestly, Clara went from being hands down my least favorite companion ever last season to one that I, I, I like, you know, I mean, second or third least favorite, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> who's, who's your least favorite now? Rose Tyler. Oh, yeah. yeah, I'm with you there, too. Who's your favorite? Donna? Donna is my favorite. Yes, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you. <laughs> I think we're all pretty much in agreement on that one, right? <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm a Jack Harkness guy myself. He has to count as a companion, right? I guess. A brief companion. Yeah, it was so quick on the actual show. Uh, he was in the opening credits a few times. Yeah. So. All right, we'll let you have that one. All right. Um... So, you know, speaking of the collateral damage, we see a soldier sacrifice herself for the doctor. And once again, she appears in heaven and is offered tea by Missy. What's going on? Any theories on this? I, she's got to be some kind of Time Lord, I think. I, I think the way she dresses, she looks very... Um, I mean, she, re- she reminds me of the doctor in the way she kind of looks to me. And the fact that the garden was such a facsimile of the TARDIS on the first episode, too. I'm not sure what it means, but I feel like there's something there. That she's related to, to Gallifrey or something. Shane, what about you? Um, uh, I'd say ask me again halfway through the season. We've, we've seen more of these little scenes. Yeah. Um, Fair enough. Uh, yeah, I think my only working theory right now is she has two interesting people right now because the military girl doesn't really have a reason to hate the doctor because the only reason she sacrificed herself is because she ended up trusting him or at least trusting Clara's belief that sometimes the doctor is crazy and sometimes he's right and sometimes he's both. And uh, so I don't think she, it's, she's not like the robot where she has a reason to like actively dislike the doctor. So she's, she's definitely getting an interesting group together. I'm no idea, no theories on what that purpose is, but I, I'm intrigued. Cal, how about you? Um, I, I totally realize that, Two is not enough for a pattern, so this theory could be way off. But I just got an <laughs> inkling that I don't that I don't love, uh, just because it's a trope I dislike. But uh, the soldier appears in Missy's where uh, Missy's garden um, after she sacrifices herself for the doctor, but we don't ever see that first soldier appear, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and I almost feel like. Uh, the game could be that she sacrificed herself for the doctor, died, and Missy pulled her out of whatever. And um, uh, the robot, you know, we were wondering, did he jump? Did he sacrifice himself or was he pushed? And it could be that she's gathering the people who sacrificed themselves for his adventures to do some sort of this is your life, doctor. Are you a good man? If you, if these many, if this many people die for you, can you be a good man kind of thing? And, uh, so that was, that was kind of what flashed through my head once she appeared. I thought the same thing. Kyle, how about you? Um, I'm going to go with, I mean, I'm sure once again, Cal and Hannah are right, but I'm going to say regeneration of the dream Lord. Okay. Um, that was one of my favorite episodes because he that's an ethereal character because i mean here's the thing stephen moffat uh you know for all his benefits and all his flaws 
he never really returns to like old classic Who villains much. I mean, like the Cybermen and the Daleks show up, but we have not seen the Master. We have not seen Davros. We haven't seen Sutek. We haven't seen any of these uh, random little characters uh, that that have shown that have always sort of sort of appeared throughout the Davies run and throughout like Big Finish's audio plays. Um, because they always like to recycle these guys because it's sort of his rogues gallery. And Moffat sort of tends to create his own. So the one person that hasn't really returned from Moffat's tropes, uh, I mean, you, you've seen the clockwork uh, robots again. We've seen the angels a number of times. We've seen the silence a number of times, including their leader. Uh, Madame Vastra showed up a couple times throughout season six as sort of the bad guy, the head of a faction of the silence. Everybody's kind of returned except for the Vashta Narada, who were the River Song uh, shadow bad guys oh, right, right, yeah. and uh, the Dream Lord. So, you know, I, and the Dream Lord is like the dark side of the Doctor's personality. That would be nice. That's one of my favorite Smith episodes, so I'd love to see him. There's my Good theory. Good point. And I'm sure a regeneration is a woman, you know, that would be something that is very possible for Gallifreyans. So, um, yes, that would be my guess. Though I don't like the idea that his dark side's a woman, by the way. I'm not trying to say that. I'm just, uh, I did, but honestly, that would be, uh, that'd be my, my uh, theory for right now. Hmm. That's, that's an interesting one. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I agree with Cal. I think, I think this episode established the fact that the robot guy jumped because that's the only thing these two people have in common is that they were influenced by the doctor to end their lives. Yeah, I mean, I keep thinking about, does it even make a difference? Like, if he jumped, he pushed, I mean... I guess it doesn't. Either way, they were influenced by the Doctor to lose their lives, or, you know, influenced directly or conversationally, but, um, but I mean, Cal is right that the soldier who, you know, shot at the Dalek and then got eaten by the antibodies was not up in heaven, which the Doctor had nothing to do with that decision that he made, so there could be a connection there. Um, so I kind of wanted to talk about the direction of this episode. This was a trippy it was a very trippy visual episode and it had a very slow pace compared to last week's episode what'd you guys think about that i actually i liked it quite a bit um i liked it more than last week's episode uh i think they did a pretty good job of well first off they made a decent dalek episode which i think (laughs) i know for personally it still doesn't match Dalek, the, the Christopher Eccleston's third or fourth episode. Um, but that's the only Dalek episode I would consider a pretty good episode. So, as you say, hooray. <laughs> um, but also, it was just, it was uh, fun. It was well-paced. Uh, we didn't have that kind of 30-minute, that 30-minute opening of going like, what? going on <laughs> um it just it it gave us a it gave us a simple premise it played the premise out played it fairly and tied it into the thematic heft of uh the current doctor's quest to see if he's a good man or not and yeah doing all that in a crisp 45 minutes or whatever is uh something the show doesn't often achieve Kyle, how do you feel about that? i'm with Kyle. I, I thought that um on the whole, the premiere left me a little colder than I would have liked. I mean, I, I liked it fine after 
or like he was in the restaurant with Clara, and then mm-hmm. it became like mm-hmm. Doctor Who I was hoping it would be with a you know the slightly morally compromised Doctor, and the, you know Doctor kind of kicks a little ass, and more and more that was showing up in this particular episode. But see, I'm a classic Who guy, so I'm I like these slower paced, slightly more mind bending episodes. Um, I mean, it sort of mixes my two favorite things are, you know, so the slower pace of classic who with some of the um, meta textual stuff that Moffat does that isn't too over the head. You know what I mean? So I I really enjoyed it. And I I honestly, this was like the for me, the first episode of Capaldi who proper. Um, That's fair. I I, I mean, I loved it, particularly when you had the scenes when they first entered the Dalek and you see like the kaleidoscope of colors. And I, I thought, man, that is that, that's a ballsy little shot for this show. And I felt like it was giving Ben Wheatley, the director, a little more room to breathe this script. Uh, whereas Deep Breath, you know, you couldn't feel Ben Wheatley on that. It was, and it wasn't really playing into his strengths. If, no. I mean, if you've ever seen that movie, A Field in England, um, this was a little more reminiscent of the shots you'd see in a movie like that. So, um, yeah, I don't know if that was because Phil Ford. You know, the guy who wrote this, co-wrote this episode with Moffat, you know, he wrote the much more successful or the very successful uh, Waters, Waters of Mars. Mars. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm not really sure if his influence was a big part of it here or or what. Uh, but this episode on the whole was just a home run for me in a way that I haven't really seen uh, out of a Doctor Who episode since maybe A Good Man Goes to War. Um, we haven't seen a standalone episode this good in a long time, yeah. which is something we were complaining about. Well, I, mean, I like Day of the Doctor a lot. I'm going to stand here and defend oh, okay, that special. Yeah. But, but everything else, you know, all of season seven, I mean, there were some nice solid doubles and stuff, but nothing that really knocked it out of the park, except for maybe the name of the Doctor, which I liked a lot. But um, this was the first one in a while where I was like, yeah, this is this is a good non-mythos episode that really is just just awesome. Harper, what about you? Um, I had I had a few issues with kind of the the moral logic of the episode, but from a direction standpoint, um, I I loved the episode. Um, it was a kind of a classic sci-fi concept that I like that they kind of made fun of that in the beginning, like oh, like nobody's done this before. Um, <laughs> but uh, that would make a good movie or whatever they said. Um, but yeah. yeah, I thought the, the classic kind of sci-fi concept was great, and it they pulled it off really really well without making it too like over the top special effects kind of stuff. It was very kind of felt kind of natural, but, and like scaled down, which is kind of my favorite uh, kind of episode when they kind of do a lot with a little, um, so did you prefer this one to last week? Oh yeah. By, yeah. by a long shot. Yeah. I, I didn't really like the first episode very much. Um, but this one was fun. Uh, like I said, I had some, some issues with kind of um, why <laughs> I think, I think the way the Daleks started and the way it ended are almost exactly the same except they don't act like that in the show. They At the beginning, they act like that Dalek is is actually morally good, even though it's still saying, I must destroy all the Daleks. And then at the end, when he's saying, I must destroy all the Daleks, he's, you know, pure evil just from the other <laughs> side of the table. Like, I think there's some issues there. But um, I thought it was a really fun concept, even if it ended in kind of a cliche way. Uh, and visually, it was it was a blast to watch. Yeah, I mean, how how super unnatural was that last line, by the way? And we'll get to it in another point you have, but I just want to point out that, yeah, it did end in a way that I was kind of like, what? It was weird, yeah. <laughs> um, Shane, how about you? Uh, yeah, I thought it was a great episode overall. The pacing was, um, the slower pacing, I think, worked really well. Although, uh, I think the one issue where, like, 
the pacing didn't work is I wish the episode had been maybe like five, ten minutes longer just because we were missing that explanation of how the hell they got bigger. Because um, they kind of just, they're inside, rusty, and then her uncle opens up the door and then suddenly they're full size. And we had no explanation of that and I wondered if it was a pacing thing. And that being said, though, the slower pace worked really well and I was really, I was with it for every single thing, every single place it was going and I didn't feel like there was anything that was in the episode that was unnecessary. I just felt like it was missing one tiny little necessary plot point. Pim particles! (laughs) They actually did cover that plot point. Remember at the beginning of the episode, they all got armbands that would uh, turn them large again once they pressed the button. Oh! Oh, I I didn't even notice that. Because right before they went in, they said that they they gave them all those wristbands they were wearing, and said that they could uh, make themselves big again as soon as they were out by pressing that button. Well, now I'm just wondering how that happened. It's like, did they like jump out of Rusty in midair? They resized themselves because you'd probably kill yourself jumping out of the top of a Dalek. So. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I'm willing to. If they had made it look cool, it would have been worth seeing. But otherwise, I'm willing to skip the action to get to the. You know what I mean? Like that's a fair point. Um, yeah, I mean, I agree with, with you guys. It's weird because last week was kind of like this slapsticky comedy in places. Like you almost expected weird special effects like boing. Hmm. And <laughs> this episode was like, I felt like I needed to be on drugs for certain parts of it. You know, it was, it was really trippy and strange. And I definitely preferred, um, this week's episode to last week, but I, I think it's kind of nice that they're going you know, instead of that season where they were like, we're going to make a movie out of every episode and this is the Western and this is the, you know, whatever. They're sticking right. with stories that make sense and they're just adjusting tone from week to week. I think that's a nice way to play with it without doing something completely meaningless just for the sake of having Western. Yeah, I definitely agree with that because that was like it was something I liked at the time when I was reading an interview with Moffat where he's like, oh, that's the good thing about Doctor Who is every episode can be a different genre. And I was like, yeah, that's true, but seeing how well this episode was, and it wasn't really, I mean, I guess you could say it's, like, it's science fiction, like, this kind of thing. I mean, the is, I guess, shrinking down and going inside of things is a subgenre of science fiction. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, the shrinking, I mean, shrinking genre. It, it, it definitely fits into a trope of science fiction, but it's, yeah, it's not like the, oh, here's our Western episode, here's our... Um, Here's our straight-up horror episode. Here's our Nixon conspiracy theory episode and stuff like that. So, uh, yeah, I, I definitely like this approach a lot more. Well, the, the, I mean, it was a haunted house episode. It was. It that was, one was good. It feels yeah. like they're going for, for feelings more than for genres now. You know, like, yeah. for, this is yeah. the style and the mood, like a mood of the episode. And I think that's a more nuanced approach that works a little bit better than a dinosaurs on a spaceship kind of a Oh, show. God. <laughs> um, you know, this episode also introduced the soon-to-be new companion, or the rumored new yep. companion, Danny Pink. What did you guys think? We only got a brief you know, a couple of scenes with him, but uh, we did finally get to meet him. Those brief scenes were more than enough. He's awesome. I love him already. Shane's a fan. How about you guys? I think he's an interesting character, particularly um, contrasted with, with the whole idea of the doctor not liking soldiers that he's, he's a very different kind of soldier. I think Um, that's uh, could, could put him in a very interesting place as a companion. 
Yeah, and in typical Doctor Who fashion, they kind of tease us with this. He's killed, and he didn't just kill a soldier, and it makes him cry, and we don't know what it was. <laughs> yeah. So I'm sure that puzzle is going to unravel a little bit as the episodes go on. What did you think, Cal? Uh, I liked him. I mean, it was a very low-key, very relaxed introduction, which I, I guess I'm I'm a little bit used to new companions just jumping right into the adventure. and. Yeah. Um, I like that. I like that the you know we got to know him a little bit, and it'll be Clara that brings him along. And there's, I, I think it was a good introduction, and I'm curious to see more. You know, Cal, that's a really good point. I, I like that we were introduced to this character through Clara's eyes, and not through this is how the Doctor meets this character because it gives yeah. her something more of a life outside the Doctor. You know. Kyle, what'd you think? You know, I tend to think um, that I don't warm very well to new men on this show. <laughs> I, know it's, I know it's weird, but the trends have not been good for me. Like, I did not like Mickey Smith at all. What about Rory? Uh, I mean, uh, it took a while for me to get into Rory, too. Rory got good, though. Rory, Rory got good, then Rory got horrible. Yeah. And so it was, it, was a, it was a weird roller coaster. He with died Rory. too much. Yes. <laughs> That was a, a that, that's not his fault. That's he became just, Kenny. But they they kind of turned Rory into a character that I just kind of got tired of. But at least I didn't despise him like Mickey. Like I couldn't stand Mickey. Yeah. So to have a guy walk onto the screen and basically win me over immediately, uh, that's pretty good. I mean, hey, what about Donna's grandpa though? Oh well, of course, Wilf is amazing. Wilf. I mean, <laughs> he's, may, he's maybe even better than Donna. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I would go with that. He was I'm, amazing. I am definitely Team Wilf. Um, but I, I liked him. I think I think Sam Anderson's a great actor. Uh, within like just the little bit we got to see of him, I was really, really, really fond of his performance. And additionally, I like that uh, you know the direction kind of worked with him too. So we were talking about Ben Wheatley a second ago. That scene, and I, you know, it could be written into the script. It could have been. It could have been a, a flourish of the director himself. But where he's regretting what he could have said to Clara. Mm-hmm. That was so clever how they cut that together. It was really well done, and I, I, don't, yeah. I don't. I don't know who to credit with that, but I, I was a huge fan of that. And um, to give him a pretty ordinary tale, I, I hope that it doesn't become, you know, some grand mystery that we have to unravel, like you just said. I hope it's literally just he's kind of there as, a, you know, a romantic foil. If there must be one for Clara, uh, mm-hmm. then he can play that role. Uh, and, you know, he can be a counterpoint to the doctor's own, like, past sins. But I don't want him to be, like, the bad guy in disguise or, or something Or the most else. important man in the universe. <laughs> right, exactly, Harper. You, you read my mind. But you know what? I'm afraid it could go somewhere because it's so unlike Moffat to put something in by coincidence. And we've got Danny Pink and we've got Journey Blue, mm-hmm. and they're both soldiers. Do we think that's coincidence? No. Oh, I didn't even think of that. <laughs> I mean, it could be. It could just be they both have color names mm-hmm. and they're both soldiers, but they always do things so intentionally on the show. I just wonder yeah. if something's going to happen with that, if maybe we haven't seen the last of Journey Blue. Um, I, 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 I've heard that theory, and like I actually, it makes a lot of sense that there's some relation and there's going to be some grand conspiracy because... There's a level on which I almost think that um, the current setup for the season-long arc is way too simple for Moffat's tastes. Like, 
this is a this is a Russell Davies season long arc setup. Like normal standalone episodes, and then there's like five seconds of mm-hmm. a word appearing or something like that. Mm-hmm. And so having having this looping smaller mystery running behind the scenes makes it feel a lot more like something that Moffat would do. I've actually got a big theory about this season already, and I was telling Kyle and he was like, wait, don't tell me until the podcast. Yeah, that'd be a surprise. Um, so I was thinking about this. Okay. We, the, I think the introduction of Danny sparked some ideas in my head. Um, he's a math teacher and a soldier. We have seen the doctor in the first episode. He woke up and he started writing math equations on the bedroom wall. Um, and then this episode... Once again, they make it a point to show us that he's writing mathematical equations all over the wall of the TARDIS. You kind of see it in the background. He's all in a math. Danny's a math teacher. I don't think that's a coincidence. I was thinking about what that could mean, and I think I think that this is a very calculating doctor, and I think that is a literal term for how he is. And I'm wondering if maybe he's trying to work out the balance of his actions and maybe mm-hmm. do some math on whether he's making a negative or positive impact with the choices that he's made and the people that he's gotten killed or killed or saved. That's my theory. He mentioned knowing the exact number of stars the Daleks had destroyed too, like a a counting kind of thing too. I I think he's doing some math. And I think at the end of the season, he's going to tally things up and and see how, you know, his ledger looks. Well, what's that have to do with Danny though? I know he's a math teacher, but is there some, some, some like... there's going to be some kind of <laughs> Danny's going to point out. So I read somewhere Moffat said specifically that they were going to butt heads over math. Hmm. What did because we learn? Danny's a teacher. Okay, what did we learn? <laughs> I, I don't know how that's going to play out and what it's going to mean, but obviously the sum of things is going to come up in a big way. And maybe this, this heaven situation, that's, that's obviously one part of the whole calculation, I think. But I, I think I think you're right that that could be an extension of the doctor self doing that. I, I have to return to something Cal said. I think I think this is a, a good point. I, I want to tie it into something Cal also pointed to, that this yep. was a very simple arc so far. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to judge the arc on two episodes. True. I mean, at the, right now, we, we just don't know anything. But it would be kind of cool to see Moffat return to the strengths of his strongest season, which were, uh, which was the fifth season, mm-hmm. which was a much simpler, straightforward story. Right. I mean, basically, you know, the cracks in the, in the, in the reality and Amy and, uh, you know, it looped back in on itself in certain places mm-hmm. and that was it. And I would love to see that kind of storytelling return. It's not quite Davy style storytelling, but it's also not, you know, season six, season seven, massive mysteries of the doctor stuff that worked in small doses, but maybe not uh, on the long haul for a lot of people. Just kind of a self-contained season long arc. I would love that. Um, Especially, you know, if Moffat decides to, you know, all right, this is it anyway. Let me just write my, you know, one more great season. I mean, who knows how long he'll stick around, but I, I would love that. I, I think that's, I think that I hope that's where it's heading. I definitely think, the doctor, like I said, is adding up the, the balance of his decisions. And I think, you know, he keeps wondering why the face he chose is what it is. And that's from the Pompeii episode where he decided to save that one family from Pompeii, even though they were supposed to die. 
I think that'll somehow play in with the, you know, the small decisions he's making adding up or something like that. God, I wish it was from Torchwood instead. That episode, that Pompeii episode's so terrible. They have to find something out of it, and so I think that's what it's going to be, but... I don't know. So that's my theory. I think it's all about math. It's all about numbers. Um, I hope that's all it's about. But, you know, is the, is the silent stuff really over? Because I got a little nervous with that last episode. They said, you know, we've got this kind of religious undertone, I would argue, to these last two episodes. That Dalek had a crack in it that looked super familiar. And then he mentioned the beauty of the silence. Specifically, yeah. he said the beauty of the silence. Do we think he's bringing all that stuff back? God, I hope not. <sighs> maybe, maybe. <laughs> okay, the cracks actually, because I didn't, I didn't the, think the crack looked like the old one. I, I thought it looked exactly. I, 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 I noticed that too, and yeah. that one doesn't because isn't that the crack to the universe where the time lords are all hidden? It is, yeah. So I mean, I could see that as a recurring motif until they're brought back. Uh, yeah. Like, not a major plot point, just a reminder that they're there. Um, I would be shocked if if this is Moffat's last season or the build-up to his final run. Like, if he's getting ready to leave whenever Capaldi does, then I could see him running through his own greatest hits. Absolutely. That would would suck. Um, I mean, I, I honestly, that's one of those things that like, I, I thought we had resolution on the silence plot point, uh, whether satisfactorily or not, it ended. And there's nearly no need to return to that element and because Trenzalore is over. You know, the crack is, has been revealed, you know. And I, I'm okay with the crack being the thing that continues to recur because that's just a mark of Moffat's run at this point. So, yeah, I'm with Cal. Um, the return of the return of Gallifrey, you know, but ugh, no more silence. I'm done with it. I, I mean, I, I don't see a place for it, but at the same time, it was a very intentional and heavy line there. Yeah. The beauty of the silence it was very weird coming from a Dalek, and I don't know. It felt it felt heavy and meaningful. We'll see. Um, so you know, I guess we're gonna close uh, next week. We've got a <laughs> Robin Hood looking episode. Oh, I'm dreading that yeah, shit, by the way. Are oh, you guys all dreading episodes. it? Everyone? Am I the only one who thinks I'm, it could be fun? I, I think it could be good. Um, they released a clip today that was a little goofy, but I've, I, I, I'm i I'm still holding out hope. Yeah, I mean, I it, it, it could be fun. I mean, um, I'm trying to remember, like, what even... I mean, Mark Gaddis's episode tend to be perfectly okay <laughs> and so i suspect that next week's episode will be perfectly okay <laughs> yeah, i mean if, if i'd read the summary i'd be like Bleh. but i don't know peter capaldi is so annoyed and awesome at being annoyed and the idea of clara swooning over robin hood and him being like ugh, i think i can get on board with a little bit of that i think it'll be funny i mean if, if gatus has the uh, ability to write the capaldi we saw written by phil ford and stephen moffat and i really have no idea who wrote what in that episode yeah. for this week um so i give them both credit if he has the ability to write that type of doctor uh, and he can give that sort of flustered performance throughout, then it might save it for me. The thing about Mark Gatiss's scripts are, 
I mean, other than that Dickens episode, he hasn't really delivered much in the way of a home run for me uh, or, you know, a really particularly great episode. That's why I'm with Cal. It's kind of like, you know, good Sherlock work, kind of Doctor Who work, and that's just sort of been his M.O. Is this one co-written with Moffat or it's just him? Just Gatiss. So we know that it'll it'll probably be pulling back a little bit on the overall arc, too, because it seems like whenever Moffat Mm -hmm. co-writes something, it's to insert his season-long arc tidbits into there maybe but he and Gatiss do have a super close relationship so he could just i mean moffat could just say like hey throw this in yeah that's true yeah yeah they're they're bffs man yeah well that's gonna wrap up our doctor who talk we wanted to end the podcast on a note that we haven't visited in a while which is our weekly pop culture recommendations so I'm going to start with you, Kyle. What do you, what do you think we should be reading, watching, listening to, whatever? Can I recommend something I haven't read yet that I'm That's, about to do? No, you cannot. <laughs> what if it's terrible? No, go ahead. It's fine. Uh, all right. So I haven't read it yet. And there's a lot of things I am reading right now um, that I could recommend. But I think I'm going to go with the thing that I haven't read yet because I'm so excited about it. Um, this week, David Mitchell, the uh, author of Cloud Atlas and Black Swan Green and Ghost Written, a number of, of really good books that people love. Not to be confused with David Mitchell from Peep Show. No, not that's the same guy. <laughs> not 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 what? the Yeah, it's I know, it's 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 easy to get excited when you hear think about Peep Show, but if, it's it's a British TV show. It's really funny. If I already hadn't picked something, I would just pick that as my pop culture <laughs> recommendation. It's on Netflix, it's awesome. Oh, I know Cal knows about Peep Show, right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> not everyone does, yeah. right? Um, but so uh, he has a new book out called The Bone Clocks, and basically the premise behind the book is kind of similar to Cloud Atlas, where uh, instead of being like a literary um, theme test, whatever you want to call it, a literary exercise, I think is a better word. Um, this is again another like generational spanning book, where instead of spanning like hundreds and thousands of years per every section of the book, it actually just spans about 10 to 20 per every section. And it centers around the disappearance of a young girl who has uh, some sort of psychic ability. She uh, gets involved with some sort of like cult based on the description. She disappears, and then her disappearance is the thing that reverberates throughout every like 10, 20 years and it affects various people in various ways. That's cool. So I'm so stoked to read it. I hope it's good. The reviews have been great. Um, and David Mitchell's a very good writer. I've read two of his yeah. books and I like them both. Um, I've read Cloud Atlas and I've read Black Swan Green. Hannah's read Ghost yeah, Green. No, she's not as big a fan. I didn't like that one. I think he's got really good concepts, but sometimes I've, I've trouble sticking with the reading. Yeah. Cloud Atlas is really good, but that middle section is such a chore to get through. Yeah, I mean, the, the different styles of writing is definitely, it's it's hard to get through them. Like, I, I was fine with that as just that section that was far in the future when everybody was talking that kind of caveman language almost. Yeah. It was just, oh. This is the true, true. True, true. Uh, <laughs> like, that was, that was one of the sections that I was glad that I had seen the movie because otherwise I wouldn't have known what was going on in that book at that point. Yeah, yeah it's a very difficult end of things. But, you know, I, I don't want to get bogged into Cloud Atlas and its merits, which I, I do admire Cloud That's Atlas a, whole a lot. Other Podcast. It is. I, I enjoy Cloud Atlas, but this yeah, book, is written, book. This book is written in like standard, regular English style. So I'll give it, I'll give it a try. I, I'm excited about it. I got it from Amazon like two days ago. I'm gonna crack it open, and uh, hopefully, I'll end up enjoying it. But uh, yeah, David Mitchell, always a favorite. Shane, how about you? 
Um, this one took me a while to think of because I, when Kyle texted me 15 minutes before we started recording, telling me I had to come up with a pick, I had no idea what I was going to pick. I was but say, uh, it couldn't have taken you that long because we only um, gave you 15 minutes. <laughs> then, then I remembered. Um, Captain America: The Winter Soldier comes out on DVD and Blu-ray this Tuesday, so yeah, I'll go with that. Um, great, great superhero movie, great political thriller, and uh, yeah, excited to add it to my Marvel collection. Not if you shop on Amazon.com, you can't get it. Really? Oh, they're not. Oh, that's right. Well, actually, no, you can now, but they're charging like thirty bucks for what? it or something. Why? I think they're having like an issue, aren't they, Cal? Yeah, Amazon's been, you know, uh, Amazon's been fighting with a lot of people lately. Um, apparently producing original content like they've been doing with their uh, yearly shows. Uh, apparently for the first time in a long time, I think Amazon lost money last year. Wow. And um, so they're really pushing a lot of, uh, a lot of companies really hard. Um, there was a book company, Hachette who Amazon was just refusing to sell their products until uh, Hachette agreed to a lower ebook price. Um, just things like that. Amazon's been trying to strong arm a lot of people and they're currently in a fight with Disney that is probably going to destroy the foundations of our society. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad there's no drama out there. Well, go to Walmart or Target then on Tuesday. <laughs> Walmart doesn't do that, by the way. <laughs> Yeah, I'll, I'll be heading to Target to buy that thing, I think. Everyone's evil is yeah. the moral. Um, Har- Harper, how about you? Um, I actually just posted a review a few days ago for a movie called uh, A Letter to Momo, which is an anime movie that just came out uh, this past weekend uh, that I really, really enjoyed. Um, it's a story about a young girl named Momo who um, her father just died in, in some kind of accident. They don't really specify exactly what happened, but she had gotten into a big fight with her father right before and um, and told him that she hated him and she never got a chance to apologize. And so her and her mother are moving to um, where she, her mother grew up on this island off the coast of Japan um, just to kind of escape. And she, uh, Momo had found this letter from her father that just says, dear Momo, and he never got to finish it. And so she's always carrying it with her and doesn't, you know, is, is kind of real, um, you know, upset about it. It's a whole, a whole conflict for her is, you know, how, her relationship with her father, how it never really got to have any resolution. Um, and so the story evolves that there are these uh, three goblins that kind of live in the house that they, they come to live in these three uh, weird looking creatures that really just start to cause a lot of trouble. But gradually you start to understand that they're kind of part of the story. And there's a, there's a, uh, it, it reminded me a lot of like um, of my neighbor Totoro and that it's kind of about how, there's a lot more uh, depth of feeling and um, moral struggle to childhood than I think most people give credit to. Um, and so it's, it kind of gives this really he- heavy story to, you know, a young girl's um, kind of life and how, how she kind of comes to terms with things um, in a way that's not crazy supernatural, but has some fantastical elements that are, that kind of make it a little bit lighter and a little more fun. Um, so it was a really, really good movie. I'd really highly recommend it. Um, it was a good balance of the kind of, you know, kind of crazy over the top fun anime stuff that you might see in, in like a Miyazaki movie, but also with a lot of the like, um, really well done kind of family drama. Um, so I, it's a, it was a really good movie. I would, I would recommend it to anybody. Sounds good. Who's the studio that put that together? Do you remember Harper? Uh, not sure off the top of my head. Um, 
Another director is, uh, uh, what is it? Hiroyuki Okiura. I haven't seen any of his stuff before. I think he's relatively new. Supposedly, he spent uh, seven years making this movie. Wow. Yeah. But I'm not sure the studio now. For for our Atlanta folks, this is actually at Landmark Midtown Art Cinema right now. And it's probably might actually be done today or tonight. Oh, really? Yeah, I think it has. I think I feel like it had a one week run. That's uh, it? Yeah, it's, uh, Midtown, and unfortunately, only gets limited limited time frames for some of these things. But mm-hmm. yeah, I think I, I think it might might be done this week if I'm right. But I'm sure it'll be on uh, video on demand somewhere. It's true. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, Cal, how about you? Um, I I had a hard time picking between a few different things, but uh, I think I'm going to go with and. This is one of those things that it, it it's not for everyone. Uh, it's something that I think there are a lot of people who would just hate it. But <laughs> I, I saw Breaking the Waves for the first time this past weekend, and I, I, it was just uh, I was staggered. It was it was amazing. It's I, I've always well not always for a long time I really disliked Lars von Trier um, for many many years. Uh, and I think it was Melancholia that started to turn me around on his work. But uh, Breaking the Waves, which was made back in um, 1996, and it was actually Emily Watson's first uh, major role. Um, it is, I think, just com- it is his masterpiece. It's, it's his best movie, and it's, it's one of the best 90s movies I've seen. I loved it. <laughs> Yeah, I I will say uh, we both made faces when you said melancholia. Um, we're <laughs> we're haters of melancholia in this house. Yeah, we we're not melancholia fans. And I got I mean I, I saw Nymphomaniac Part One. I didn't bother with Part Two um, because Part One was all I could take. But I'm I'm willing to revisit the early stuff um, if if you're willing to vouch for it. There, Cal. Um, that's. Uh, you know, me and Lars Puncher, we don't we don't go together too well. Well, but. Cal specifically said this is not for everybody. Yeah, it's true. But I'm 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 willing to check it out based on that recommendation alone. I mean, Von, Von Trier is kind of an enormous dick, so <laughs> I, I totally get not not liking him and um his I don't know, like I I, I totally understand not liking him, but I remember um. Melancholia is probably one of the two or three uh, stories that I've ever engaged with that really captured what like depression and a panic attack and like these kinds of things felt like to me. And um, it just hit me at the right time in the right way. And uh, seeing him capture that feeling more than an intellectual experience, more than, uh, filmmaking or storytelling experience, uh, it was a strongly felt movie. And I think that is what links all Von Trier's movies to me, is they're, they're almost all about feeling something incredibly strongly. And that's a pretty rare thematic through line for a modern filmmaker, I think. I'm intrigued. I'm intrigued. Well, um, I'm going to wrap this out. My recommendation is another book. I have read the book that I recommend. I'm going to butcher the pronunciation, but it's called The Colorless Sukuru Tazaki and His Years of Pilgrimage. It's the newest release by Haruki Murakami, who's one of my all-time favorite authors. Um, Murakami writes... 
very like surreal and strange novels is kind of what he's known for. Um, and this one is maybe one of the more approachable ones he's done in a really long time. It's about the main character, Sukuru, who he's, you know, he's grown up, he's out of college, he's got a job, he's got a girlfriend, and he, his girlfriend notices that he seems to have kind of like some issues, some baggage. And she kind of tries to explore what that is. And um, he ends up going back to his high school years where he had a, a group of five really, really close friends who one day just completely stopped talking to him. And they refused to answer the phone and they wouldn't speak to him in person. And they never really offered an explanation for why they had cut him off like that. And it definitely, it kind of sent him into depression and he had a really he had a really long, hard struggle to recover from that wound. And so in this story, he goes back to visit each of those five friends who are all kind of grown up now and figure out what went down and why and kind of who they are now. It was a really interesting and good story. I highly recommend it. Hmm. That sounds pretty cool. Yeah. I, uh, I enjoy uh, the, the simpler Murakami, it seems. I've only read two of his books. Uh, I've read uh, Hard Boiled Wonderland at the End of the World, which Shane and I have talked about on the podcast before. It's a great book. And I've also read The Wind Up Bird Chronicles, which I liked parts of. And then it, as he got into his more esoteric chapters, uh, not so much. So a simpler Murakami is definitely up my alley. He's the most famous for a book called Norwegian Wood, which I think is also a movie now. Um, and that is the simplest version of Murakami you'll ever get. But I think it's almost... Simple to the point of you don't get to actually get a taste of the good, surreal stuff that he, he's known for. So this book is a nice marriage of both of those things. It's an accessible story, and it's got some kind of strange moments combined with it. So, All right, well, that's going to wrap us up. We'll see you guys next week for presumably more Doctor Who. Yeah, and, <laughs> and, maybe, and maybe something else, too. We'll try to think of something else yeah. for the non-Hoovians. Maybe something will happen. I don't know. <laughs> this is just the one show that we all watch, you know? It's hard not to podcast about it. I know. Oh, I know. I, I, I guess next week's Harper's going to host, huh? Yep. She gets to so. host the Robin Hood episode. <laughs> Sorry, Harper. All right. I hope it's awesome. <laughs> all right. Thanks, guys. Take care.